0: Welcome to the latest in our series of podcasts, companion to the Primary Care Excellence work, which has been created for all primary care staff in Greater Manchester. I'm Lynn Marsland. If you've missed any episodes, you can go back and download them anytime from wherever you already get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your colleagues so as many people as possible hear the series. Today's podcast is the second of two opportunities to explore trauma with our guest, Norma Howes. You will remember from part one that Norma trained as a social worker, a therapist, then a child forensic psychologist. She now works as a psychotherapist with children and adults who have experienced or are experiencing all forms of trauma as well as that she provides training for professionals in this episode we will be helping you to expand your understanding of trauma and its impact on the body and mind psychologically neurobiologically and biologically we will look in more depth at what really goes on when we experience trauma and what helps and hinders communication and enables acceptance trust and engagement. Hello again, Norma. Morning Lynn. Thanks for joining us again today. In part one, Norma, you took us through some very helpful yet simple examples of what trauma might look like. And you certainly gave me lots to think about, about what I'd learnt just from that episode. Firstly, today, can you tell us a bit more about your own experience of working with challenging patients? I think the most important thing
1: that I've learned in working with my patients' clients is that the behaviour is the answer and not the problem. Because if we stop the answer by medication or conditional help, another answer will be needed. So when we're thinking what to do, we need to think about what could this behaviour be the answer to? What could be the problem that needs to be dealt with? It's fine to take time to stop and think about that as long as the behaviour is not life-threatening or a safeguarding issue when immediate intervention would be needed. But unless we actually try to work out what's the problem, then any solution we offer will only be short term and maybe even not helpful and may even lead to false compliance or avoidance. So I think the most important thing I've learned is not to think about the behaviour as being the problem. It's the answer. It was life-saving, it enabled survival when it was needed, but it is now maybe a bit out of time and out of place. But somehow it still is, seems to work.
0: So tell us a bit more than normal. Do you know, we use the
1: word trauma very loosely. Sometimes people will say, do you know, I had a really traumatic journey to work this morning, when really the correct word to use would have been a bit stressful. A bit stressful is completely different to trauma. Because the word trauma means that whatever happens was really intolerable, probably life-threatening, and really beyond any of your already well-used coping strategies. It just makes your brain work completely differently. And not only that, there's a different chemical soup is released into your body through your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, while it enhances your ability to survive, is toxic to your physical and psychological well-being. And... Until we find a way to first of all recover and come back into our window of tolerance. Remember last time we mentioned the window of tolerance and I'm going to say a bit more about that later. It's very difficult to learn, if not impossible, to learn from that experience. And instead, we unconsciously repeat the behaviour which ensured our survival at the time. Or we avoid anyone or anything which reminds us of that event sometimes as we mentioned in the first podcast that survival behavior will still be useful to being very inappropriate and sometimes even miscalled or treated as an addiction instead has been seen as being a habitual survival response it's those two consequences avoiding and repeating which leads to the diagnosis of post traumatic stress disorder do you know sometimes i think we need to think about mental health diagnosis and addiction as being caused by a paradox. For example, I have to fight every day to get up, to eat, to live, to be understood, to survive. I have to flight from the pain by using drugs, daydreaming, sleeping, self-harm, alcohol, not leaving the house. Both flight and fight, needed, contradictory to each other, paradoxical, but both work. Let's think about another common mental health diagnosis, borderline personality disorder, sometimes called unstable personality disorder or emotionally unstable personality disorder. When we read through the diagnostic criteria for these diagnoses from a trauma-informed perspective, maybe even add another couple of diagnoses like attention deficit disorder or attention hyperactivity disorder, maybe even pseudoepileptive seizures, now called dissociative seizures, even depression. And we look at the criteria as behaviours, which are an answer to the problem. This leads us to having a much more trauma-informed perspective and to look at mental health in a different way. So, instead of saying, let's find out what's wrong with you, or we make the comment, she's attention-seeking, manipulative, aggressive. Instead, we have a conversation that starts with, let's find out what's happened to you. Or indeed, what is happening to you? Because these coping strategies mimic the diagnostic criteria. Now you might then wonder how you would change your approach to these people who are called annoying or attention-seeking patients whose medication seems ineffective or they're definitely not taking it properly. Or indeed, you change their diagnosis and change their medication. Lots of things to think about from a trauma perspective. One of the other consequences of trauma that's been researched and well published now are what are called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. This research has identified a clear link between trauma and childhood and its long-term impact on physical well-being. So just as patients whose mental health is a consequence, we find so many of the things that people might get diagnosed with especially when the label includes the word syndrome, like irritable bowel syndrome, chronic pain syndrome, even atypical migraine, but it also includes fibromyalitis, fibroids, even other gynae problems, maybe not quite a gynae problem, but even avoiding smear tests. It links to cancer, chronic heart disease, diabetes, obesity, all researched and finding links with childhood trauma, particularly childhood sexual abuse. So many medications prescribed to deal with the answers to the impact of the trauma without actually finding out about the trauma which caused or continues to cause them. It's interesting that we found that one of the chemicals produced by the body to ensure your survival while you're being stressed or even in trauma is cortisol. It's an excellent chemical that enhances your survival abilities. But when it's present in the body for a long time, the effect can certainly be seen on the body, perhaps in some unexpected but certainly very inconvenient problems. It affects skin tissue, which scars more easily. Ears may ring. There's weight gain, particularly around the stomach. The changes in intestinal functioning, like bloating, heartburn... Reflux, Irritable Bowel Syndrome I mentioned earlier. Frequent aches and pains from body tension because the body is in a state of constant hypervigilance and the release of prolactin makes it really difficult to gain muscle and anything you do to try and gain muscle is lost very easily. This can result in overtraining, creating more cortisol. A couple of other things. Icy hands and feet overly sensitive skin, affecting eczema and allergies flaring up, particularly to dairy products. A lot of things to think about that maybe we don't think might have a trauma cause at their base.
0: That's so interesting talking to colleagues at work and friends who kind of talk about some of these chronic things. It does make you wonder. Norma, you mentioned before about the window of tolerance. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Do you know, I love talking about the window of tolerance because it's such an important thing to learn about and know about when we're thinking about trauma. It's the amount of stress that someone can manage. It's the amount of stress that is life-enhancing that is in the window of tolerance. When you're not managing things, every single person has a unique window of tolerance. When you're not in your window of tolerance, you tip into trauma. It's really, really interesting I think it was first written about in 1999 by Dan Siegel in his book, The Developing Mind. From what he wrote in 1999, there's been a whole lot more new research that's enabled us to really think more about this thing called the window of tolerance. When Dan Siegel first wrote about it, he said that when you're born, your window begins to develop, your own individual window begins to develop. The more loving, the more caring, the more empathic, the more nurturing, the more connected you are to your parent, the wider your window will become. Of course, sometimes your parents don't get it right. Sometimes they make you wait. Sometimes you've got a little bit of stress to deal with. Sometimes parents play games that enable children to feel a little bit, to make them feel aroused or make them feel stressed. Things like playing around about the garden. Things like playing hide and seek. things like, oh, Lots of games that we play with children that challenge their stress levels. Life can be a bit stressy at times, but all of that enables your window to widen. Because when something has happened to you, there's what gets done, there's what it does, and then there's what was missing. And as long as something happens to you, and it does something to you, and of course it changes things in your chemical soup and it changes things in your relationships, but as long as there's nothing missing, then it doesn't go into trauma it actually stays as a stressful event. Now, research has overtaken that, and now we know that that window of tolerance actually develops in the last trimester of the pregnancy. And if the mum is experiencing trauma in the last trimester, it can impact on the baby's developing window of tolerance in utero. That means it's a bit mammalian in its history because one of the things where mammals are prepared for in utero is whether or not they're going to be born into a safe or an unsafe environment. So if the mum is experiencing trauma during the last three months, the baby is prepared to come into a world that's not safe because the baby has shared the mum's chemical soup and the baby is already alert to loud noises, to bright lights, to things changing. And so it can be a more irritable baby. Or indeed, to the opposite, a very quiet baby. Because that baby has learned that if you're quiet, nothing will find you. <laughs> There's no predation. If you're noisy, you get help. But what if you need help and you can't be noisy? It becomes complicated. And so that baby's window of tolerance does not develop, but stays extraordinarily narrow to ensure its survival. It might help if I give you an example of a situation where something got done what it did, and then what was missing. My sister-in-law and I shopping in next in the sale, it was completely packed. And I could see this little boy who was lost. And I said to her quick, went across to him and said, oh my goodness me, has your mummy lost you? He said, yes, with a big sort of, <laughs> and I said, well, let's see if we can find your mummy. What shall we do to find your mummy? And he looked at me like, if I could have thought of something and I'd done it. So I said, OK. I said, I'll think of something. Shall we shout? And he shook his head and nodded his head at the same time. And I said to him, you're not allowed to shout, are you? He said, no. I said, it's OK, I'll shout. So what shall we shout? What's your mummy called? And of course, he said, mummy. So I said, well, if I shout mummy, all the mummies in this shop are going to turn around. So what shall we do? What does your daddy call you Mummy. And he, and, and he said, Angela, and my sister-in-law laughed because she said afterwards, she said, you had no idea what you were going to have to shout in that shop. You were very lucky it was Angela. So I said to him, okay, after three, I'll shout, Angela, are you ready? And as I as I counted to three, his fingers tightened on mine, And I said, to him, I shouted, Angela. And this man ran towards us. This little boy ran towards him and a daddy and jumped in his arms. And his daddy said to him, oh, my dear boy, Oh, my dear boy, I'm so sorry we lost you. Oh, I'm so sorry we lost you. Oh, my goodness me, I'm so sorry. And this little boy started patting his dad's back and saying, It's okay, Daddy. Don't worry, Daddy. I'm okay, Daddy. It's okay, Daddy. Absolutely delightful. I just wonder how many times you've actually seen someone who has lost their child, blames the child, and then hits the child to tell them how pleased they are to find them. (laughs) So for that first little boy, what happened? Happened nothing was missing. There was recovery. There was reciprocal care. The little boy took care of his dad's window of tolerance. The dad took care of the little boy's window of tolerance. They both took care of each other and wasn't that delightful. That sounds lovely. My sister-in-law said to me afterwards, she said, that was really interesting. And I said, what was that? And she said, you said to him, has your mummy lost you? I said, yeah. She said, I would have said, have you lost your mummy? I said, it's not his fault. He's the victim in the situation. You don't blame victims for the situation they find themselves in. His mummy and daddy should have been looking after him. And she went, oh, yeah. Oh, and wasn't it lovely he took your hand? And I said, oh, that's interesting. That's not what went through my head. And then I wondered whether or not I should enhance her window of tolerance by asking her (laughs) and giving her another bit of information. And I said to her, I said, well, actually, when he took my hand, I thought about James Bulger, that little boy in the shopping centre who took two other little boys' hands and went off with them. And that's what came into my mind. And she went, oh, I couldn't live inside your head. (laughs) I said, "Mm, I guess we've both got different windows of tolerance, which then made her ask me, oh, what's a window of tolerance? At which point I thought, oh, enough.
0: You're my sister-in-law. We're shopping. The neuroscience is really interesting here, Norma, and I'm certainly picking up things and looking at them from a different angle. So I'm just wondering what else you can tell us about that staff working on the front line can glean from this.
1: Some of the neuroscience helps us to understand what's actually happening in the interaction we have with people. When we're in our window of tolerance, there are three bits of our brains working, the cortex, the limbic system, and the brainstem. The cortex thinks the limbic system deals with your feelings and the brainstem manages your body functions. When we need to think more, our cortex takes over, but this is tracked by our limbic system. So the three bits of the brain operate together. The nearer you get to the edge of the window, the more fragile or unstable that connection becomes. When we're out of our window, when we're in trauma, it's our feelings that take over. Our emotional state becomes the most important thing to manage. We don't think, is this the right way to respond? We don't think this is challenging, how would be the best thing to do here? What we do is apply a solution that worked the last time. And if you remember, in part one, we actually gave a couple of exercises around that. So we need to be thinking about what happens when you're out of your window. And that is that the trauma response takes over. Your hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal axis takes over to release the chemical soup to ensure your survival. Adrenaline, noradrenaline, some endorphins and cortisol. And that results in a 7F response. Fight, flight, feed, reproduce, freeze, flop and fart. And these are in the language. We know about fight and flight. We know about feed because we talk about having a gut response. We talk about having butterflies in our tummy. And all of those Fs are in the language. Alongside that is a psychological response called dissociation. And it's dissociation that enables to do things that we would otherwise not be able to do. But it also enables us to stay attached and to stay in a relationship with a person who has caused us to experience that trauma. We don't have time to talk much about dissociation today, but it's really interesting if you could Google it or look it up or just think about it. I'm sure you'll find that extraordinarily helpful in understanding what's going on. One of the other things that happens in the brain is that when you're out of your window of tolerance, two other bits are switched off, your Broca's and your vernicus, which are your receptive and your expressive language centres, and they are switched off. Hence, we have the expressions, I was speechless with terror, I was gobsmacked. And you may well not actually realise it, but when you're asking a patient to come for the results of tests and you know that those results are not going to be very positive, you tell them to bring a friend. Now, you might not have wondered whether why you tell them to bring a friend, but you tell them to bring a friend because they'll only hear part of it. As soon as they go out of their window, when they're not able to tolerate any more of what you're saying, that bit of their brain switches off, and they're not able to receive or express language. But their friend is still listening until their friend gets overtaken by being concerned about what they're hearing, as well as taking care of you. But by that time, you're back in your window and you can then listen. So between the two of you, you actually get all the information that you need. What happens is that you pay attention to the tone of voice rather than the words that are being used. So when we respond to people who are finding a conversation with you that starts off stressful but may well tip them into trauma because of something else that's going on in their life that's caused them to be wobbly and caused them to be stressed and caused them to be right on the edge. They stop listening to the words and instead they pay attention and close attention to the tone. Now you might think, by the way you're saying something, that you are being calming, but they hear it as patronising. You might think you're trying to be helpful, but they might find your words that you're using or the jargon that you're using just thinking about how do you differentiate your tone of voice? How do you let somebody know that you're concerned? Because if you think about I'm really concerned about you, I'm really angry with you. Can you tell the difference between the tone? But if I'm expecting you to be angry with me or I'm feeling angry because I'm already waiting, then I'm already primed for anger and I'm ready to hear angry. And then I respond back with anger, which may well not be very helpful and may well cause a bit of a disruption in our conversation so we need to think about the other thing that happens as well which you might of course you wouldn't be able to see it when you're on the telephone but if you're doing a virtual call remember that people smile when they're on the edge of their window and that's that attachment seeking behavior is if I smile at you you'll stop being horrible to me. If I smile at you, you'll smile back at me and that will stop you being horrible. Or it gives me a little feeling of control. It lets me feel like somehow I'm now just a bit in control. So we have to be thinking, do we make assumptions? Do we actually wonder what's actually going on enough? Do we reflect back enough and say, I wonder what that was about so that we can actually think what might have been going on for that patient? What might have been going on for me? Maybe what we need to be thinking about is just a little bit more. One more thing. One of the other things that happens as well is that people who have experienced trauma, who are spending quite a bit of their time out of their window, one of the things they find extraordinarily difficult to do is to wait. Because waiting is intolerable, easily intolerable. You might find that yourself if you just think about how do you manage dealing with waiting? Do you find your knee wobbles? As you go into flight, do you find your shoulders tighten as you go into fight? Or do you think, what will I do here? Maybe I could make something happen. So if I make something happen, then I take control over when it happens. Because I don't actually know if it's going to happen or if it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. But if I make something happen, then I'm in control of when it happens. Now, we think about that when we're thinking about domestic abuse. We may well have had a victim say, but it was my fault it happened. And we may well were thinking it would be helpful to say, but actually it's not your fault. Maybe it'd be much more helpful to actually say, can we have a conversation about that? I wonder what would happen if we just chatted through what it was that actually happened. Because then you'll find out that the waiting for it to happen, that that person could tell the moment their partner came in whether or not there was going to be violence. And so they're waiting and waiting. And then they decide to make something happen. And then they thought, was it their fault? You might even think, yeah, it would be if you didn't wait. Well, if you can't wait and it's too painful to wait and you make something happen to stop the waiting, then of course you tell yourself it's your fault. Then the perpetrator then says, it's your fault. You did this. You did this. That made me do this. Two things. It absolves the perpetrator of responsibility themselves for what happened. And it also allows the victim to continue to blame themselves for what happened. And that keeps them stuck together in that relationship. It creates what's called a trauma bond. So when someone says, to you, it's my fault, don't say to them, it's not your fault. Have a conversation with them and say, well, I wonder if that is your fault.
0: Let's see if we can figure that one out. So the effect on the window of tolerance of waiting, for example, that you've just explained there, relates to all of us who are working with patients, clients, particularly those on the front line and the organisational issues associated with that, such as queuing, call waiting, etc. Does that fit with what you're saying about the window of tolerance there, Norma?
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Even if you go back a bit before the patient has
1: phoned, they're prepared with an answer to any problem they're going to face when they try to phone you. It could be anger with themselves. It could be that they've been misusing or not using their drugs that's been medicated. Their history explains their behaviour, their pain, their illness that mimic those diagnostic criteria so they're already alert to any irritation in tone of voice from the reception staff or other things or just sheer waiting absolutely can be just so intolerably difficult for folks to have to experience so given that patients' previous experience when they've attended to the doctor or they've tried to phone through when they've how frustrating must it have been for them when their answer to the problem has been anger or violence to themselves or misuse of drugs, or they've been given a diagnosis of a name with a syndrome, and that your history has been used to explain away your pain as a psychological thing rather than something that needs investigation. Because your pain and your illness and your behaviour mimics the diagnostic criteria. And then you get irritated with reception staff because their tone of voice, or their actual words, blame or shame you for those answers resulting in them calling you manipulative or attention-seeking, blaming you for not understanding that your need to see a doctor will be triaged by a non-clinical receptionist. And even the use of a recorded message using jargon such as triaged starts off blaming and shaming, starts off that someone who just feels that they need time and they need some empathy and they need some care, they're offered a five-minute appointment with a clinician or a doctor they've never seen before. I'm sure you can think of lots of other things that cause conflict between the patient and the staff, the doctors, the receptionists and everyone else becoming dysregulated, becoming annoyed with each other, not connected properly with each other. So we need to think about how do we help? We need to regulate our own breathing. We need to regulate our own tone of voice. We need to stop our voice from going up and becoming faster because then that ticks somebody up. We need to be speaking calmly. But we need to make sure it's not patronising. There's so many things to think about because we're going to use all our previous experience and our knowledge. We're going to be thinking back to think what went well, what didn't go well. And we're going to try and bring together new ways of being receptive, being helpful, being kind, being empathic. And you will notice such a difference in how
0: the patients then
1: respond back.
0: And I guess going back to what you were saying earlier, Norma, the thing that's making me consider all of this is that that's talking about a a patient who has or is suffering trauma. The same could be very true of that member of staff. And they're trying to deal with that themselves. So finally, I was just thinking, is there anything else that you would like us to consider, with regards to working with patients and colleagues with regards to trauma?
1: Sure, absolutely. I think really there's some practical and organisational challenges in making sure that all the staff have the necessary training and skills and support and debriefing and supervision, not moaning to a colleague about that pesky patient, but really challenging ways of thinking. Clear answer phone messages. We've instructed reception staff to ask about your symptoms so that they can refer you to an appropriate clinician. What? (laughs) What about my need for privacy? What about my need for a particular doctor? How could you reword such an answer phone? And then to say, your call is really important to us. We apologise for you having to wait. What? I've been on the phone for 25 minutes. Surely you can get back to me or you can phone me back or something. What if the patient's on a pay-as-you-go phone and they're already up to the edge of their tolerance just by the need to phone you, never mind the waiting and listening to these answerphone messages. Sometimes those answerphone messages also have a particularly patronising tone. Maybe that's just my own GP's practice, but I'm sure it must be other GP's practices as well. Let's think about what else we can do. Do we use social prescribers? Do we explain their, how their role is used on the notice board? Do we have community meetings? Do we have community forums? might be also helpful for all staff to have training in conflict resolution techniques. How we don't focus on the tone of voice and we don't focus on the behaviour, but we think about what it's the answer to. How we listen with body, tone, tension. We're watching for feet tapping. We're watching for our own feet tapping. Thinking ahead to points of conflict. How are we going to deal with disagreement? Planning together how we can resolve those. Identifying what works, what doesn't work. Having time to share what does work. Those positive skills, experiences in dealing with patients. Not magic, not, golly, that person's really good at this. But let's thinking about how we all become really good at this. So, two things to remember. Patients phoning can't see us and are highly aware of tone and texture. Vulnerable patients, even more so when they're near the edge of their coping ability and they're ready to tip into trauma and have a further trauma experience just by phoning us. This is not just a job. It's a job with patience, empathy, tenacity, creativity and maybe most important, the ability to hear and then to listen to what patients say and what their behaviour tells us is the answer to their problems not the problem. Let's not get hijacked into just dealing with their answer. Let's try and think about what might be the problem. And above all, smile.
0: Thank you, Norma. Lovely advice at the end there, although I can hear some of our listeners saying, if only it were that easy. But I guess listening to the detail that you've given us in these last two podcasts will really help. And you've mentioned some other things. You've mentioned about social prescribing, for example, and other ways of dealing with patients. And we're going to be putting some podcasts together specifically around that kind of approach. So I think the bundle of podcasts that we're doing now have a really common thread with regards to understanding patients better, understanding ourselves better, and thinking about how we can deal with some of those situations. To make our own lives a little easier, let alone those for our patients. Thank you so much, Norma. I think this has been a great set of insights. If you've missed any of our podcasts, please do go back and download them for free. We'd really love it if you could share them with your friends. We want as many people as possible to hear this useful advice from all of our amazing guests, such as Norma. Don't forget there's a wealth of information and advice on the Primary Care Excellence page too. All links are on the show page and you can also connect via our social media channels. If you're involved in a project and you want others to know about it, we'd love to hear from you. The more we work together, the happier and healthier our workforce will be. This has been a Fresh Air production. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.